Well, here on Sunday mornings, we recently turned a corner into Matthew chapter 13, which gives us the greatest record of Christ's parables. And first up to bat this morning is the longest, most significant parable, the parable of the sower. There's a lot to cover in these verses, so we're going to just dive right in. Take your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 13, or if you're new, you can grab a pew Bible, go to the New Testament, Matthew, first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 13. Let's be reminded, what exactly is a parable? A parable is a short, true-to-life story that communicates spiritual truth. In Sunday school, we would call them earthly stories with heavenly meanings. Parables sometimes function like extended metaphors or similes or analogies, but they have kingdom mysteries embedded into them. And as such, the parables of Jesus, they're really like their own genre of Scripture. Now, another fact that sets the parables of Jesus apart is that without explanation, they turn into riddles. Parables have a sifting function. They sift true disciples from false, insiders from outsiders, wheat from tares. Parables both reveal and conceal truth at the same time. To those who know God and have eyes of faith, parables reveal great mysteries of the kingdom. But to those who don't, who hate God or have hardened against his word, parables conceal the deeper things of God. And this dual function of parables is not a design flaw, it's a design feature. Now you might wonder though, why would Jesus ever want to conceal truth? I thought he came to make the truth known. Well, yes, he did. And we found in Matthew, he has done so. But you see, we've also found that the people have largely rejected that truth. Jesus has shown everyone the door to the kingdom of God. But so far, we've watched as the religious leaders have slammed that door shut, responding with malice and envy. And the rest of the people, they just don't really care. They're indifferent. They're fascinated but uncommitted. But the Lord who demands discipleship, that is rejection. Thinking about these people, no one has ever received that much light. And these people had the light of the world standing in front of them, the literal incarnate word of God, Christ performing countless signs and wonders, Yet, they have turned away from that light. And so now we see Jesus in the gospel start to turn away from them. And so we learned last week, one of the main reasons the Lord started here teaching in parables was to keep them in the dark. That to the unbelieving, parables, they're actually a form of judgment. They're an indictment on those hardened in heart, concealing greater truth from them. We don't make that up. That's what we learned from the Lord himself last week, verses 10 through 17, here in Matthew 13. And there Jesus gives his reason for teaching in parables, both to reveal and conceal truth at the same time. And the emphasis in those verses was certainly on the the concealing side of things. But now we return, and we want to hear more from Jesus because, well, we are his disciples. We do believe in him. We do follow him. And now we want to know what are those kingdom mysteries he has revealed for us in these same parables. The Lord wants his people to know God's plans and purposes for his reign in this age and the age to come. And so we've come back to discover the things revealed. And so after a broad introduction to the power and purpose of the parables last week, now we want to start going through these parables in Matthew 13, one by one. And we start today with the parable of the sower. Jesus is on this floating pulpit In the Sea of Galilee, the crowds are massed on the shore. And that day, he starts speaking to them in parables, and only parables. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke all agree that the first parable Jesus spoke that day was this one, the parable of the sower. It's the most prominent parable. You might even say the parable of the sower serves as like a cornerstone of kingdom truth for the church age. And all this from a very simple story of a sower throwing out some seed. But that's part of the majesty of these parables. When Jesus taught, no seminary degree was required to listen. You didn't need any special vocabulary. Everyone would have immediately known what he was talking about, at least on the surface. But we want to see if we can get beneath the surface of this first parable and see what is being revealed. So let's get started. Well, very simple. We'll break this up into the parable told, the parable explained, the parable applied. Simple as that. So let's start. The parable told. This is Matthew 13. It's told in verses 3 through 9. Well, let's read as we go. So start in verse 3. Matthew 13, verse 3. It says, And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. The very first parable starts with a, a sower going out to sow some seed. The picture is a farmer at the start of his season going out to sow some seed. Back then, a, a farmer typically wore a little weather, a leather bag around his waist, a seed bag, and would scatter seed by hand, manual broadcasting, throwing it everywhere, wheat, barley, whatever it might be. These farms were not large, processed, mega farms like today, but they're all those small, small individual plots of land. And sometimes the field was plowed beforehand, but in the ancient Near East, they often just scattered the seed and later would come back and plow the seed into the field. Galilee and the region around the Sea of Galilee was known for extremely rich, fertile soil. It was their breadbasket. So little farms like this were everywhere. Now roads at the edges of these fields were very common, as well as roads going right through your field. But don't think road. Think like trail. It's not like there are paved roads everywhere. Rather, places of high foot traffic would be compacted down, hard as rock. And so these little walking trails might go right through your field. But that makes what happens in verse 4 not unexpected. Verse 4 says, And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. And the earth was so tough and hard on these roads or trails that the seed would just simply sit there on the surface. You wouldn't even bother tilling that soil later because, you know, foot traffic is just going to trample the seedlings anyway. So these seed kernels lying exposed on the path, they're easy picking for the birds overhead. Off they go. They're the first to go. But then verse 5, it tells us that others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. Now, even for us city slickers, or I speak of myself at least, coming, being born and raised in L.A., I didn't know anything about anything farming related until I moved here. 13 years ago. But this is still easy enough to understand. Don't picture a field full of rocks, however. That's not really the picture. It's of shallow soil with a firm layer of bedrock or firm rock underneath, like limestone. And so the seed falls on this shallow soil. It quickly germinates, buds out, starts to grow. This little sprout rapidly shoots up in the warm soil bed. It has nowhere to go but up, but you know what's going to happen as soon as the sun turns and really starts beating down. This plant, lacking deep roots, can't draw any moisture, just going to shrivel right up. Without the essential depth and root system, this young plant will quickly dry up and die. So be it. We understand that. 
That was another category, verse 7. Still, he says, others fell among the thorns. The thorns came up and choked them out. Now, sometimes you might have a hedge of thorns or a briar patch, and you might leave it in your field. It serves as maybe a natural fence, a natural barrier. Maybe it's on the outskirts. But no crops are going to thrive right next to that thorn patch. I think we all know how sad it is because of the curse that weeds grow so much better than all the crops we want to grow. Jesus speaking for home gardening. If only we could get the plants we want to grow to grow like weeds. We've ignored our garden all winter long, and the thing is just everywhere is weeds. But thorns and weeds, they will continue to overgrow and overpower the good crop. I mean, the roots go deeper. They're native to the soil. Their leaves reach further. The good plants next to them, they're deprived of light and moisture. So you, you know what's going to happen. It's going to be choked of energy and yield no crop. And like when you're sowing wheat, that's, that's all you're in it for. You just want the harvest. It's not for show. If, if it doesn't get you that fruit or that harvest, it's, it's good for nothing. And we know that modern agriculture aims to squeeze every square inch of fertile soil from the ground. But the ancient farmer did not have such resources or time. Their, their strategy seems to be just to broadcast seed everywhere, trusting enough is going to fall on good soil to still get a good harvest. Indeed, that is the case. Verse 8 says, others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop. Some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. You can already tell there's plenty of obstacles when it comes to farming and sowing, but when good soil is found, a good har- harvest is to be had. And the harvest Jesus describes here is pretty astounding. A 30-fold harvest was not unheard of, but it's pretty special. You would think it's divine favor. Typically, a farmer might expect a sevenfold increase compared to the number of seeds sown, but Jesus ends this parable telling of this amazing harvest, and the results are really extraordinary. Some 30, some 60, some 100-fold yield. I mean, any farmer would be elated over this. It's good news. This parable is starting to get depressing. We keep hearing how the seed is failing and bearing no fruit, but it ends on a good note. The harvest comes. The seed produces harvest in the end. And that's it. There you go. It's a parable of the sower. It's pretty simple. It's intriguing. It's captivating. I'm sure the people who heard it at first would have been amused. Jesus goes on, moves right on to the next parable, no explanation. But he does say one thing to signal there might be something more going on here. Verse 9. He says, he who has ears, let him hear. Let him hear what? Like seeds, soils, birds, thorns. What, What are you talking about? What does he mean? Is there more to this story? It's over. Jesus has finished this parable, but you surely already know there is more to this little story. That that is the point. Because his words, much like the seed on the good soil, reach far deep underground. They have a deeper impact. And there is a deeper message here for those who have ears to hear. He's talking about his disciples, and well, that's us now. We want to join them in finding out, well, what do you mean by this little story of a sower going out to sow. And so it's simple enough. Let's move over to now the parable explained. The parable told. Secondly, the parable explained. Because in that moment, Jesus, he just kept teaching that afternoon, moored offshore in this little boat. He just told parable after parable after parable to the crowds. That's all they got. He goes on the wheat and the tares, the mustard seed, the leaven, the pearl of great price, Eventually finishes, dismisses the crowd, goes to a house alone with his disciples, finally alone, 
And then he starts explaining things. We already covered next verses 10 through 17 where he told them the purpose of the parables. That was last week. But now we're going to jump down to verse 18 where we find from Jesus his own explanation of the parable of the sower. So let's go now to the parable explained. Verse 18. He tells them later, Hear then the parable of the sower. He says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom... Stop there for a second, because we already have an identification of the seed. What is the seed that's being sown? In this case, he says it represents the word, the word of the kingdom. Mark, who summarized Jesus, Mark 4.14, he says, the sower sows the word. Scripture uses a few key terms, like the word or the gospel, just to encapsulate the whole message of God, his son, his salvation. This word or this gospel, it's, it's really a message It's a message of truth and hope, a message of the life, death, burial, resurrection of the Christ. To be saved, it must be believed. To be believed, it must be heard. To be heard, it has to be preached, Romans 10, 14, so hence the need for a sower. This sower obviously then represents someone who is broadcasting the word of the kingdom. Who is the sower? The answer ultimately is Jesus. He's the Savior who came to the earth to preach the gospel of the kingdom. We've been seeing him do this all throughout Matthew's gospel, teaching, preaching. He has already been scattering the seed of God's word and will continue to do so. Now, relatedly, in the next parable, the wheat and the tares, which Jesus also explains, there he explicitly identifies himself as the sower. You can see down in verse 37, by way of preview for next time, he says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Now, in this parable of the sower, Jesus reveals truth about God's kingdom. That's really a paradigm for the whole age that we're living in. It's really true of all the parables. And so we know that Jesus is the chief sower of God's word. But in a real sense, anytime anyone, any believer announces or shares the gospel, he or she is becoming a sower. And this is also true. He, which means you can expect these exact same varied responses. And actually, that's, that's the focus of this parable, right, isn't it? It's not really on the sower or even on the seed. The emphasis is all on these four different soils and the different results that come about. The seed of the word is sown on four different types of soil. It's, it's crystal clear what these soils represent. They do not represent people. But notice, they represent different heart conditions. We see that in the middle of verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Where did that seed land? What was the soil? The person's heart. So it's clearly soils represent the heart of man. And so what we find then are four different soils representing four different heart conditions which themselves characterize four different ways people are going to respond to the gospel message. That's what this is about. So now let's go through and look at these four heart conditions and their responses. First, the hard heart, verse 19. The hard heart, verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. There's no mystery. He tells us, tells us exactly what it represents. Now, there are two reasons this seed doesn't bear fruit. 
The first reason is just it's hard soil. It's compacted down. A little while ago, I went mountain biking in the hills nearby, and you see this lush field all around you, but the trail itself, nothing ever grows on the trail. Why is that? Because everything else is growing, but you know, it's because every day hundreds of runners or horseback riders or mountain bikers, they're just trampling that trail and they're compacting it down. Nothing's ever going to grow there. It's hard as rock. Some people, their hearts are like this. Their hearts have become hard as stone. Just nothing gets through. No conviction. The word doesn't penetrate. How does someone get like this? Usually over time, it's long habits of sin kill their conscience. Romans 1, again, gives us insight into the hardening of a person's heart. God made himself known to all people. He implanted the knowledge of God in their hearts, and in creation, he's implanted his knowledge as well. We're all born with the knowledge of God, and also given a conscience able to discern right from wrong. The thing is, all of us born sinners, we all exchange the truth of God for a lie. People deny God, choose their sin. The problem with sin is it, it brings guilt and shame. And you realize that's on purpose. That's actually a good thing. It's meant to lead you to repentance and seek this Lord for forgiveness. But the thing is, a lot of people don't want to do that. They love their sin too much. They don't want to give it up. And so they're going to have to eventually turn on their conscience. They're going to have to kill that conscience. Otherwise, they're just going to be feeling bad all day. You have to suppress those feelings of wrongdoing. You do that long enough, and the older you get, and you keep doing that, just a callous forms over the heart. Eventually, you can be doing wrong. You used to make you feel bad. Now, you, you don't even feel bad anymore. Like, like an egg, a hard shell has encased your heart. Nothing gets through. Not guilt, not conviction, not the word. It's like seeds sown on concrete. It's never going to germinate or grow. And when a person becomes hardened like this, they, they don't give the gospel the least bit of consideration. They, they don't care. They can hear it. They don't understand it, but they just don't care. It's foolishness to them. They don't really want to hear it. This person may or may not believe in God, but certainly they don't need a Savior. They are not interested. Now, thankfully, we know God's Word is so powerful. It can even bust through concrete. This person is not beyond salvation. Hardened people can be broken and saved. The power is in the seed. We know this. The problem is, Satan also knows this as well. And so, we see Christ depicting here, Satan, evil spirits know that if the seed is left on that hardened soil too long, it it just might break through. But they don't want that to happen. So, like birds, they're pictured like birds. Satan, we would say by extension, demons, they just remove the word from people's hearts. It's just like the verse we read from last week, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. It speaks of the God of this world, the devil. He has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. These people are already hardened. The seed will likely have no effect, but to remove all possibility, we see the evil one working to just get rid of the seed for good, diminish it. How, it doesn't say, but likely through suggestion, persuasion, distraction, many ways. It just makes the, the seed inert. We don't have eyes to see the spiritual warfare taking place all around us, but the point of the first soil is to explain that some people reject because their hearts are hardened and because spiritual forces are at work opposing the gospel. And no doubt this first soil would describe 
In Christ's day, the religious leaders of Israel, who heard it all, but they were as hardened as you could be against the word at this point in their own satanic opposition of Jesus. But I think today we all know people who are still like this. Because as we will find, these full responses, typical in Christ's day, they're just as typical today. But at the very least, may we certainly continue to pray that God would soften and break such people. We've seen it happen. We know he can do so. It's not hopeless. Let's pray for those who are hardened. Now, second response, though, a second soil, verse 20, 21. It's a shallow heart. The shallow heart. Look at verse 20. He goes on to say, The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Think about this next response. It seems like the total opposite to the first response, the hardened heart. This person is not hostile to the word at all. This person offers no resistance, just like total acceptance of everything you tell them. He immediately receives the word with joy. He's like, hey, amazing. Done. We're done here, right? There's a stir of excitement around this person's conversion. Emotions are high. This person who appears on fire. But then something happens. Give it a little bit of time. What happens? It says affliction or persecution arises because of the word. Which means this person gets a little bit of that taste of the cost of discipleship. We know this paradox that Salvation is free, but it costs you everything at the same time. It's free and costly at the same time. It's a free grace gift apart from works, but to follow Jesus is going to cost your life. What does that mean? It means even to start following him, you've got to die to self and deny self. It's part of knowing and recognizing, oh, Jesus is Lord, not me. I'm not Lord anymore. He's Lord. That's like step one. It's realizing that he is the greatest treasure, that he is the pearl of great price. You might see a little later that to gain him or to keep from losing him is worth any cost. But what about the cost of your life? What about when your your life is risked or threatened for the sake of Christ? You'll find out pretty quickly, what do you treasure more? Your life, your stuff, or Christ? See, when the going gets tough, these people are revealing their shallow heart, which means their shallow faith. They'd rather cling to their life and the stuff of life than than Christ. And such people, sadly, prove that their faith was not genuine. It was motivated by some other perceived felt need. Look, we've seen in Matthew a lot, Jesus himself, he did not keep the cost of following him secret. It's not a bait and switch. He told you very early Hey, if you're going to follow me, I offer you like forgiveness of sins, eternal life, but, and it's all free, but here's the cost to following me. For example, back in Matthew 10, the, the second great discourse or sermon in Matthew's gospel, it's all about the cost of discipleship. He says some crazy things like this, Matthew 10, verse 16. He says to his disciples, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Verse 22, you will be hated by all because of my name. He warns you, verse 25, if they've called the head of the house Beelzebul, meaning the devil, how much more will they malign the members of his household? In other words, he's telling you to expect, in this age, serious opposition 
and persecution. Look, that's how the world treated Jesus, the master. How do you think they're going to treat his disciples? Now, he goes on, thankfully, and tells us, hey, you don't need to fear at all. Because, look, God is with you. He's with you. He cares for you. You don't actually need to fear them. But it's going to test you. It's going to test your allegiance. He says in verse 32, 33 of Matthew 10, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me, doesn't just say denies me, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And then down to verse 38, 39, Matthew 10. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. We've been warned. We've been told what the cost is. In Christ, you gain eternal life. He came, he died on the cross to pay for all of your sins, which you could never pay on your own. He offers to forgive you, to wipe the slate entirely clean, even give you his own perfect righteousness. What do you have to do? Nothing you can do. You simply bow in faith and follow him and trust him. It's all a free gift of God's grace. But what he's saying is like, once you walk through that door of faith, there's going to be consequences. You're going to gain new enemies in the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it it can lead to a lot of persecution, affliction. And it's going to test you. Do you treasure Christ more or this life? And some people, they, they sadly prove willing to forsake Christ to hold on to the things of this life. And such apostasy from shallow believers, it's still just as prevalent today as it was in Christ's day. It's not new, nothing new under the sun. In fact, I think we'd all probably say in our modern era, it's got to be more prevalent. Shallow disciples are often a byproduct of shallow evangelism. Our modern era has seen this phenomenon where some people think, kind of like modern farming, they think they can extract a higher yield, a greater harvest, if they just alter the seed. Let's like modify the seed a little bit. And so they, they adulterate the gospel message by removing the cost of discipleship, the demand for repentance, the, the, the conviction of sin. That makes people feel bad. Let's, let's exclude it. Instead, they preach what's called an easy believism, where so-called churches or Christian organizations, they just, that their aim is just to pressure people to make a decision for Jesus. Because if you say you believe, you're good to go and we're done here. But they aim to lead people to profess faith in the heat of the moment. Maybe it's a Christian camp or a concert. could even be a church service. But emotions are running high. You have someone where loud music shook them. Lights dazzled them. A sermon moved them. And when they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. Just like Jesus described. I mean, they, they pray that sinner's prayer. They run up there. They accept that altar call. They, they sign that card. And now they they must be saved. They made a decision. But then they go away from that mountaintop experience. They go back to normal life, and they find actually like nothing changed. Their trials didn't go away. Their sickness didn't go away. In fact, now on top of that, now that they they follow this Jesus figure, they're actually getting a lot of heat. Their friends ridicule them. Some of their family members ostracize them. Their employers pressure them. This is not fun. They didn't sign up for this. And for some people, just, just as quickly as they sign up to follow Jesus, they, they drop out like a class they didn't really want to take. Or, they, or, perhaps even worse, they sink into nominal Christianity. 
which means every now and then they'll, they'll take the title, they'll keep calling themselves Christians when it suits them, but by no means do they live like a Christian whatsoever, walk the walk, bear fruit, by no means. You know, George Whitfield was the great preacher, the first great awakening, preached before thousands and get quite a response. You talk about decisions, go follow George Whitfield. But they would ask him, how many people do you think got saved today? And he would say, we'll see in a few years. Not to mean that salvation is a process. It's not a process. It is instantaneous. But time will tell who has a mere profession of faith versus who has a genuine possession of faith. As R.C. Sproul would often say, you're not saved by a profession of faith. You're saved by possession of faith. And the true believer will face the exact same persecution and affliction because of the word, but he or she will prove they possess faith by responding with endurance, which itself is a fruit. And endurance actually gained a proof of their faith. Isn't that 1 Peter 1 and James 1? But in falling away, the shallow sadly only gained the proof of their false faith. Let them turn again. Let them re-renew to true faith, but understand the shallow heart is a wrong response to the word. Now, there's one more wrong response here. Thirdly, the divided heart. Verse 22, the divided heart. He says in verse 22, And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world, and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Jesus said, true disciples must deny self, pick up the cross, follow him. The shallow heart, they're not, they don't want to deny self or pick up their cross. And now here, this divided heart, they don't really want to follow. If Jesus said, you, you must follow him, and he always presents it as this radical all or nothing commitment. You're, you're either in or out. You can't straddle the fence. You either commit to giving him your whole life or you don't. But we've seen in Matthew time and time again, there's no neutrality. There's no middle ground with Jesus. He says, if you're not for me, you're against me. It's like the man who, whom Jesus called to follow him. The man responded, hey, Lord, please first allow me to bury my father. And Jesus said to him, remember his response? He says, no, follow me. Allow the dead to bury their own dead. It's like, hey, that seems kind of extreme. That's, what's up with that? But catch the lesson he's giving that if you let anything get in the way of following Jesus right now, you're never going to follow him because there will always be something to get in the way. You will always find some excuse. Now, I'll get serious with this faith thing after I graduate college or after I get my career started or after I get married or after we have kids. There's always going to be some excuse. Christ is saying such a person is not a true disciple, that their devotion is divided, their faith gets choked out and never bears fruit. It's unfruitful. You see here, Jesus identifies two main distractions to our soul. He says the worries of the world and deceitfulness of wealth. And this, this sure captures what those in the world are consumed by. Look, we know some of the worries of the world are not inherently bad things. We have, we have needs and concerns. Where am I going to work? What am I going to eat? Where am I going to live? How am I going to live? These concerns aren't evil, but they can quickly become consuming concerns. We also know how most in the world are, are really driven by money, that the love of riches, they just want to have more and more, thinking 
In money, they have the ultimate security. Just look, being rich seems to solve all your problems. I wouldn't have to worry so much if I just had more money. But we know riches are deceiving, offering no real lasting security in this life. Zero security in the next life. Once again, the real issue here is whether Christ is your heart's treasure or something else. It really boils down to that. Is Christ your heart's treasure or something else? You can only have one ultimate treasure. It's not evil to desire food, shelter, and clothing. It's not even evil to desire luxuries, rest, comfort. There's nothing wrong with those things. But who or what is truly first in your heart? Is it Christ or self? In one way or another, do you ultimately live to please Christ or to please self? We've heard Jesus talk about this before. His first great sermon, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 25. He says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or drink, nor your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He goes on to tell us, like, look, you need to know your, your God cares for you eternally. He made you. He's going to care for you. He will meet all your needs, but as for you, what are you supposed to do? Matthew 6, you just seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, the true disciple will find contentment in Christ and seek him first, but the false disciple, feeling all the pressures of the world and the lusts of the flesh, eventually is going to give in. He will eventually forsake Christ because he's, he's really after something else first. And eventually, Christ will be an obstacle to getting what, he's really, what he really wants. And that day, Christ will lose. There's a clear warning here. I think for us, living in America with so much prosperity, we're surrounded by the worries and pleasures of riches. Not in themselves evil, but what, what a world of temptation, distraction we live in. But do not be seduced and wander. Just like 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10 says, it says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves for many griefs. It's not hypothetical what Jesus says about this divided heart. There are more than a few who have longing, not for Christ, their heart's deepest longing is for, for the stuff of life, and eventually they, they walk away from Christ to get it. Beware, be warned. Now, so far, this parable has been very depressing. <laughs> like that the seed is scattered, the word goes out, and it keeps failing. We have a threefold failure of the seed. But failure is not the last word We have number four, the good heart. Christ himself calls it the good soil, the good heart, verse 23. He says, lastly, and the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil. This is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. So the fourth type of soil or heart is the good heart. And some of this good soil yields a 30-fold harvest, 60, 100-fold harvest. But the point is, they're all good. They all bear fruit. And the three-fold 
failure of the seed is matched now with the threefold success of the seed. For these people, the word of God is presented to them, and they're not hardened against it. They receive it wholeheartedly. That acceptance is not shallow, it's deep. It's from their heart of hearts. And their discipleship is not divided, it's focused, it's pure. To sum up, this is clearly the picture of true faith, true discipleship, and it results in a harvest. Now again, it's very easy to think that this good soil represents good people, but again, it does not. These are heart conditions. Scripture is very clear, it's actually no good people. None of us are good. They're at Romans 3, none are good, none seek after God, not even one, none righteous. And so we ask, like, what makes the soil good then? How is this good soil? And the good soil simply speaks of a heart that is receptive to the word. These are none other than those whom Jesus described in the Beatitudes, those who are poor in spirit. They're broken over their own sinfulness, their unworthiness, they're meek, they're humble, they're hungering for righteousness. By no means are these people less sinful than the bad soil. They might be more sinful. They don't need to be smarter, have a higher IQ. It's just that their hearts have been tilled by the Holy Spirit who produces conviction over sin. They've been made desperate for a Savior. That's all it is. When a person gets to that point, then all it takes is the seat. When they finally get humbled and broken over their own sin, it just takes the seat. When the gospel lands in such fertile, prepared soil, by the power of God, it will implant, germinate, grow up, bear fruit. And that is the picture of a true disciple. You see that the three-step process in verse 23? This person hears the word, understands it, and bears fruit. Pretty simple. You notice that the big distinction with all the bad soils versus the good soil, it's just bearing fruit. In the end, that's how you know good versus bad soil. Did it bear fruit or not? That's the difference. All the bad soils, one reason or another, doesn't really matter. They didn't bear fruit. They heard the word, and that's it. They heard. They didn't understand. That's responding with faith. And they certainly didn't bear fruit. But the good soil are those who've been given eyes to see, understand, and obey the word. Just like James 1.21 says, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. These people believe the word by faith. And then they go on to give the proof of that faith, which is bearing fruit. And speaking of which, the true disciple will, by definition, bear fruit. We know all too well, you're not saved by fruit or good works, but you are saved for them, Ephesians 2.10. It's the guaranteed outcome of new birth. It's the essential evidence of saving faith. That's why Jesus can say, Matthew 7.17, every good tree will bear good fruit. Why he can say in John 15.8, bear fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Now, there's more to say here, but just step back for a moment. I finished verse 23. That's it for this passage. But just step back. Consider this parable of the sower overall. What's this about? What is Jesus getting at? We've learned it's a tale of four soils representing four heart conditions, which in turn speak of the different ways people will respond then today to the gospel the word of the kingdom. So we've heard that parable told. We've heard it explained. I trust it makes sense. But I think we need to go down one more layer to appreciate that the fullness of what Jesus is revealing. And so we can finish with this. Number three, 
The parable applied. The parable applied. Because it's one thing to hear the parable told, like the crowds. It's even another to hear it explained, like the disciples. But we we really want to meditate on its meaning and apprehend its application. Why is he telling this? I believe three key applications rise to the surface here for us to consider. What are they? What's the point of this? Four disciples. First, explanation. First is explanation. We don't want, want to miss the main point of this parable in its historical context. Some people think it's all about evangelism. Or it's all about personal examination. And those are valid. But first things first, that in the life and ministry of Jesus, the primary application comes by way of an explanation. And yes, sometimes it's a legitimate, a legitimate application is just something to know. He's giving us something to know first. The parable of the sower explains what is happening in God's kingdom and the ministry of Jesus. Don't forget verse 11. All of these parables are meant to reveal mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. So just, just put yourself in the shoes of the disciples in this moment, in this time. These 12 disciples, they're unlike the crowds in that they do believe Jesus is the Messiah. And that's great. The only problem is they have pretty much the same expectations of the Messiah as the crowds, which is why they're very confused. What were these expectations? At the time, all the Jews were waiting for the Messiah to come. He would liberate them from the the yoke of bondage to the Romans. He would elevate Israel to an exalted status as he rules over the nations. And they emphasize the earthly, political dimensions of the kingdom to the total neglect of the spiritual dimensions. And many times we see these disciples expecting the same thing. This is why the ministry of Jesus is so puzzling to them. Do they believe Jesus is the Messiah? Yes. Does Jesus preach the kingdom? Yes. Does he display kingdom power? Yes. I mean, the kingdom is present in Jesus Every time he works a sign or wonder, you're seeing that kingdom power. But then like, well, where is it? Where is the fanfare? Where is the army? Where is the global domination? If Jesus, if Jesus is the messianic king, how on earth could all of the religious leaders reject him? And even the people not follow him? That, that's not supposed to happen, right? Like, like, what is going on? When is the kingdom coming? How is the kingdom coming? Things were not going as expected. But now, finally, about the midway point of his ministry, starting with these parables, Jesus is revealing only to his disciples with eyes to see, here's the real plan. He's finally filling them in on God's plans for this kingdom and its progressive stages. It's not going to come when or how they expected, but he's setting the record straight, revealing many mysteries about what we now call the, the church, the church age. And so with this in mind, we'll find this true for all the parables. So what is the message of the parable of the sower? Well, for one, Jesus is explaining how the kingdom will face resistance. It's going to face opposition. This kingdom will not be universally accepted. There are forces at work which oppose this kingdom. Birds, scorching heat, weeds. They all stifle the seed. But look, that's to be expected. The kingdom in this age will experience opposition and apparent failure. But don't be sad. There's no stopping the harvest. 
That which stifles the sower and his seed will not have the last word. Even as Jesus will later reveal that he, the king of the kingdom, must be killed, the harvest is still going to come. And just who can imagine that, that the king comes and he's rejected and killed. And after that, he rises again, departs for a very long time, and will return a second time. Who is expecting any of this? But that is why Jesus explains to them these mysteries of the kingdom if they have ears to hear. So the primary application of the parable of the sower is really an explanation. An explanation of the different attitudes and responses to the word in this age of the kingdom. We'll see, you can expect this era to be one of a mixture of success and failure, acceptance and rejection. That is not unexpected. This is an explanation of why Jesus himself was met with so much rejection and why the disciples themselves will find that same rejection. But do not fear, there will be a great harvest. God's word does not return void. Now, apart from that explanation, which I believe is at the heart of all these parables, I do believe there are a few other intended applications here, especially since Everything Jesus says applies to the whole age. So now we can also consider a second application, which would be examination. It is legitimate examination. It's legit to ask yourself, when you hear this parable, what kind of soil am I? How would you describe your heart, your response to the gospel? If you've ever heard it before, or maybe just this morning, which soil are you? Just because you show up at a church on a Sunday morning does not make you a Christian. And even if you call yourself a Christian, every professing believer is commanded to examine self all the time. It's a good thing. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Test yourselves, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. And conclusively, all throughout Scripture, what is like the defining mark of a true disciple is bearing fruit. It's just bearing fruit. It is the distinguishing factor between the seed on bad soil, the seed on good soil. Bearing fruit. It is the proof of new birth. And look, not everyone bears to the same degree, 30, 60, 100. But all believers will bear fruit. So what about you? Do you bear fruit? You might ask, like, well, what does this fruit look like? What is actually fruit? I think we have to boil it all down You can boil it down to just obedience to the will of God. Obedience to the will of God. We're not saved by obedience, but once you're born again, the true believer loves God, loves his law. It's his delight to obey. God's ways are better. This is not just hearing the Lord. It's not just calling him Lord. Talk is cheap. You have to prove your faith as you obey him as Lord. Has this not been a massive theme in Matthew's gospel so far? We learned back in chapter 7, of all these people on the day of judgment are found calling Jesus Lord. Matthew 7, 21, Lord, Lord. And he rejects them from the eternal kingdom. They're cast out. How can that be? Why? He explains himself in Matthew 7, 23. He says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. How do you know that won't be you? There's no such thing as a sinless disciple. We're not talking about sinlessness, but is your life characterized by righteousness, repentance, 
or an unrepentant lawlessness. Right, very, right after that, the very next thing Jesus tells this little story about a house built on rock versus a house built on sand. And a great storm comes, and you know which one survives. And it's its own little mini parable about, he says, those who hear my words and act on them versus those who hear my words and do not act on them. It's like hearing and obeying or hearing only. And you know which one stands, which one falls. Just like Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So examine your life. Do you, do you pass this test? Do you bear fruit in obedience? Any. We're looking at any. Tenfold, thirtyfold. We'll take what we can get. Do you bear fruit? Or are you perhaps living a double life like those described in Titus 1.16? speaks of people who says they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. We know none bear fruit perfectly in this life. We, we sin, we still stumble. You might even look at the parable of the soils and, and think to yourself, like, like sometimes I, I kind of feel hardened in sin. Sometimes I, I think I shrink away in fear from persecution. And sometimes my faith is distracted by the love of money. And that may be. Keep in mind, though, the false believer shows their cards. When they fall away, they will fall away. The true believer will stumble, but he or she will repent and return. So like if any of this convicts you, good. Repent, return, and just join the club. You know that church is not meant for good people and people who have it all figured out and have it all together. It's meant for those who know all too well their sin, their brokenness, their need for a Savior whom they have found, and they delight in him. They happily follow him by faith, trusting that he who began a good work, he will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6. So just cling to him by continual repentance, continual faith. That is the true disciple. And then after that, you just excel still more. That's the rest of the Christian life. Excel still more. Just let the word of Christ purify your zeal for following him. It's always good to ask yourself, thinking about these things, Functionally, is there any way you've become hardened by sin or shallow in your response, divided in your devotion? Christians, we we follow Jesus, but we can still be hindered by the distractions of the world, so let's be purified. These words are still ripe for personal examination. Do a little soil test on your heart. You find any patches of hard, hardened soil, divided, shallow soil, Well, ask the Lord for mercy to change and be renewed. Like James says, you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. You seek him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you can know you will be pleasing to him. Now, to finish up, we need to do so. A last response we'll mention here would be evangelization. Just to keep the parallel going. Explanation, examination, evangelization. Evangelism, it's not the main point of this parable. It's really not. But it is a worthy application because what Jesus teaches here is relevant to this whole age. Jesus sowed the word, but that work is not finished. That work has been passed off to us. Anytime you share the gospel, you are similarly sowing seed. And so now this parable is really telling you the different responses you can expect. The main lesson here is not the need for sowing seed that That should be obvious. We have the Great Commission, the last word of this gospel. 
make disciples of all the nations. Really, as Christians, one of the chief ways you bear fruit is by sharing the gospel. But the real lesson here is in what to expect. Like, Why did so many people reject Jesus, even though he was the king? He, had, he was the perfect preacher with the perfect message, and people still did not believe him. He'd work on signs and wonders. They still did not believe him. But in this age, we know that there are forces at work within human hearts that hinder the seed. So if Jesus was opposed and rejected, what do you think you can expect? But don't let that discourage you at all. He's told you these things to know what this, this, this age will be one of acceptance and rejection. That need not discourage you at all. In this age, yes, many will be hardened against the truth. You'll share with them. Nothing gets through. In one ear, out the other. Nothing happens. Other people will respond. Their faith seems good at first, but a little trouble comes along and they're out. They're, they never were that serious. And then some are so distracted that they call themselves Christians, but they're so divided in their interests, eventually falling away. But our heart breaks, but don't be discouraged by these responses. We are to expect them. At the same time, also expect a harvest, knowing that ultimately there is power in that seed. You just need a seed, needs to go out. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Just remember, if you never sow, sow any seed, you have zero chance of harvest. And so, you know, our job is rather simple, just to get out there and spread the seed. And do so trusting God. Trust the power he put in his gospel message. We do not need to alter it or modify it or adulter it. Don't modify the seed. Trust God and his power through the Spirit in the seed to do its work. You just throw it everywhere. Which also means you don't need to prejudge soil as if you're only looking for good people. People who like, look like they might respond. No, that we, the fact is we don't even know who's who until long after the fact anyway. Your mission, like this sower, is just to scatter the word everywhere. Just broadcast it all over the earth to everyone you meet. You just be faithful to share the full word of the kingdom and God's will and God's providence. Some will find good soil and will bear a good harvest. When that harvest comes, you just glorify God. You can't take any credit. You can sow. You can water. We know God causes the growth. So be sure to give him thanks for that harvest, including in the harvest we see in our own lives. But from explanation to examination to evangelization, Let's just make sure one way or another we are among those who rightly respond to the word of the kingdom. Let's take that to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray now thanking you for your word, which is clear, which is true. By your grace, by the spirit you've given to us, we, we sit at the feet of the master this morning, Christ our Lord, our Savior, and the wonderful teacher wanting to know mysteries of your kingdom that he has revealed to us. As we behold them, though, may we now prove ourselves to be hearers and doers of this word, those who hear the words of the Lord and act on them. This might be a call to repentance for some of us, seeing our hearts being shallow, distracted, divided. It's certainly true for all of us at some point. Purify us, Lord. May we not be double-minded, spiritual adulterers, but renew us. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning. You've already paid for our sins in Christ. We're not under any condemnation, but renew us in that zeal to follow you, to make much of Christ. And I pray you convict us to be that good fruit 
Again, by your power, by the word implanted, by the spirit, just live it out to walk the walk, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called and convict us and, and open up the way before us. Whether that's fruit in our life, our characteristics, the fruit of the spirit, whether that's good deeds and doing good to those around us. Yeah, may we be those who, who prove we are your disciples by bearing fruit. In the end, we, we will take no credit. We'll give you the glory of the God who called us and set his grace upon us in eternity past, even now, till the soil of our hearts and cause the seed to implant. What can we do? How can we boast in any of this? We will give you the thanks and the glory, moving us now to rightly respond. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.